0: David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world. BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at shopburb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com/slash Light Culture. Artist Kenny Scharf is a survivor. In a career that spans 40 years, he has gone from madcap to wonderkind, to art world dropout to OG working in a reconstituted L.A. studio, making one masterpiece after another. Scharf claims to have been dosed by his brother when he was 10 years old. If so, we have him to thank for the psychedelic pop surrealist paintings and sculpture that he's been making ever since he burst on the downtown New York scene in the 80s with his running mates, Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. A life full of ups and downs, it's great to report that Scharf's definitely up again, but it wasn't easy. Friends went on to fame and fortune, but died young, whether the cause was drugs or AIDS. It got so bad that he moved to the jungle in Brazil, away from it all, to live in a house without electricity. I didn't realize I was killing my career by leaving New York, he says. For a period of time, he virtually disappeared from the art world, but in the process he had two children and rekindled his love of nature and its lush colors, an experience that sustains him to this day. A documentary, Kenny Scharf, When Worlds Collide, directed by his daughter Malia Scharf and Max Bash, is in the works. We talk about being inspired by the posters he saw in head shops when he was a kid, his performances with Ann Magnuson in Club 57, the creation of his psychedelic Cosmic Cavern playpen, Hanging with Warhol, a sojourn in Miami when it reminded him of the East Village, and much, much more. So listen up. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Today, my guest is Kenny Scharf, world-famous artist, old friend, um, raconteur, who is here, lover of donuts, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> happy to talk with you. How are you doing, Kenny?
1: hmm. Buddy, over there, you're in New York?
0: Yeah, we're in New York. Uh, the last time I visited you in L.A., you were like really frustrated in a way because you had to leave your beautiful studio where you'd been like uh-huh. for almost twenty years, right? And that's right. It was like a an enclave. It was it was wonderful. And you haven't
1: been back since.
0: No, so okay. Well, when you come back,
1: I mean, you're going to be like, whoa! Oh, really? I was like, it is so much better than the old oh. studio. So, you know, sometimes you just have to go with that, and then things work out better.
0: Cool. So how's that?
1: I'm sad about my trees. I had all these trees, and they you know, now they're, they're completely gone. But I have a 30-foot-high ceiling, so... Yeah, I, so
0: how has that affected your work at all? Let me just give a You know, like, just describe your work a little bit, since this is, like, an audio format, and people can't really see, uh-huh. and I'm sure...
1: Well, it changes. My work yeah. changes. Okay. Uh, I do lots of different things, and paintings... Murals, sculptures—that
0: they have a unifying uh, you know, like aesthetic, don't they?
1: Uh, well, yeah, but that also changes. I have various styles. Uh, <laughs> most people know me for, I guess you would call it, cartoony aesthetic. Um, That's one word. I, I did coin the term back in 1981, and of pop surrealism, um, but I. Don't really say that anymore because it's been taken over, uh, and it now basically it means lowbrow. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't have a new word yet to describe it. How about uh, psychedelic? You know, it's
1: just <laughs> everything in the in the mix. It's pop, abstract, surrealism, mixed with conceptual art.
0: Oh, <laughs> big words. Yeah. Uh, would you? How about psychedelic? Does that fit in anywhere?
1: Oh, wow. Well, you know, that's always part of it. Especially if you could see what I'm working right right now as we speak. But since it's radio, you can't.
0: Oh, God. So tell me, describe.
1: Uh, it's very psychedelic. The background looks kind of like a tie dye t shirt, uh, you know, rainbow swirl kind of thing. Nice. And then, you know, we've got some other action going on can i say
0: so now we have to sort of like try to figure out how you got there from you know your beginnings right because but even right from the early on your work had that influence were you uh influenced by psychedelics at an early age or you know yes actually i or? was
1: dosed by my older brother really isn't that nice wow <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> on purpose i can't prove it how old but were you? i
1: think that's what happened to me i was it was like in the late '60s, and I was about ten. Yeah, not a good, not good when you don't wow. know what's going on and you're in school. My God! But it was the late '60s, so he ended up in a kind of a place for teenagers that freak out on LSD. Oh my God! Back then. Wow. And I have some good, weird memories of it all.
0: So were you already into the Flintstones and the Jetsons? So, because I let me also tell my audience that that's you know you revive those cartoons which i guess they were still on pretty much in the 70s weren't they in the 80s but yeah
1: they mean they had reruns and they still do you still see them i mean they're just basically i i incorporated the flintstones and the jetsons in my vocabulary uh partly because i love them and they represent the future and the past and Hence the conceptual side. Um, but I also wanted, I didn't want to make things that nobody could relate to. And I realized that if I used them, that everybody had a point of identity and identifying with these uh, icons. So it was a perfect thing for me to do. I mean,
0: they were awesome. Yeah. But you don't do that anymore for the most part, right? I do it all. You throw them in <laughs> somewhere, you have to look carefully. Now your work is so layered there's so much going on that uh you know you really have to look at it over and over again to get it all <laughs>
1: It all depends on what which what what which what I'm working on okay it changes a lot it's like changing the i try to explain to people it's like changing the channel going from you know the remote control of my childhood they had like thirteen channels, so I think I have thirteen different styles, and then you just switch over and then you can go back to the commercials or you can go uh, return to the drama or go back to the cartoon or, you know, it's like that. And then you can mix them up even. So that's kind of how I look at it.
0: And then when you do your shows, do you feel like you're working on one of those styles or one of those stories? Yeah,
1: at a it's time? true. When I have a whole show, I kind of have a con- concept of what I'm into at that moment. So it's definitely has, you know, relations to each other.
0: And you said uh, you grew up in L.A. and then, you know, famously Mm -hmm. moved to New York. Uh, Did you I'm an L.A.
1: boy and back home. Back home. I mean, it was kind of a while. Many years.
0: Many years, right? Um, What what does that mean to you? What did you bring? Because I saw somewhere that you were quoted that you brought to New York what New York City yeah. needed from L.A. What do you think L.A. has that New York City needs and vice versa? What does New York City have that L.A. needs? Well,
1: when I arrived in New York, it was uh, as you know, very gritty and and gray and down but super fun, obviously. I'm just talking about you know the, the economy and everything. And the neighborhood was pretty gritty and gray, but everything else was pretty fun. So early on, I saw all the trains and and I and I could relate to a lot of the stuff that I was seeing on the trains looked a lot like what I saw in California van surf culture uh, those airbrush paintings on the vans with the bubble lettering just like what you see on the trains except an airbrush and not a spray can and a much smaller scale obviously but that whole culture I just it connected with me with that kind of kind of a hippie you know what's a zap comics kind of magazine mm-hmm. way. So I kind of connected to that when I moved to New York and I just kind of feel like I brought a lot of the bright colors and um, pop of California to that moment.
0: And what is, uh, what can LA learn from New York in that respect from the arts?
1: Um, well, I think, I don't know, maybe it's changing now, but LA, For a long time, I thought had a little chip on its shoulder because it wasn't New York. Uh, And and I just was like, don't try to be New York. Try to be what New York can't be, which is open spaces and outdoors and sunshine and all this. So I think L.A. really needs to take advantage of what New York doesn't have and can't have.
0: Instead of trying
1: to make these buildings that house the art. They should take advantage of, of you know, very L.A. things.
0: Are you a fan of downtown L.A. at all?
1: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I grew up here, so I just can't believe how much has changed from when I was a kid into what it is now. It's funny, you know, when you grow up in somewhere and you're, you're, you're getting older, and then you see how much change, you know.
0: Has yeah, happened. hello, welcome to New York. I mean, the East Village and all that, come on. You can't... Yeah,
1: I know. It's crazy mm-hmm. when you're walking on Delancey or yeah. something like that, and you just see the glass towers. It's just it's like that.
0: Right, so what I'm thinking here about you in New York, I mean, it's kind of an unavoidable conversation to have, exactly, right? Especially given my background and yours, that we were contemporaries yeah. in those days
1: you were like the first one to write about what i was doing i think way
0: back then remember That's that it's possible it's possible <laughs> yeah we were way first in a lot of stuff uh like that and uh, you know and very proud of it as well today i mean there was a whole new culture a new way of looking and uh mm-hmm. you know that was very exciting i also saw that you said you wanted all of you wanted to be famous somehow at some point, yeah. and which was kind of striking to me because there was even you know just before you guys right there was that previous generation, of the 70s mm-hmm. right, and uh, the sense there was that they didn't really want to become famous, and uh, yeah, I felt like the the whole bringing the street culture into the conversation changed all of that, especially with the graffiti people coming in and the, and hip-hop, where, you know, these basic yeah. outsiders that hadn't really had an opportunity to make it before, and suddenly they were in the spotlight, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah,
1: it was amazing time.
0: And and you were, you know, one of a, a great group that, among them, you know, Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol... You guys were like kind of, there's lots of photos of you, all of them together. He was your hero. And
1: he was like our, 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 our mentor in a way, our, our hero. And he actually, I think brought most of us out to, to New York from other places. The thing about being famous, it was more about like just emulating his whole pop world of art into real life. And, And the popular culture itself, that was so inspiring. And me, along with so many other young kids, just said, oh, I'm moving to New York.
0: The whole idea of the superstar that he created, which was obviously not a superstar to anyone except people who lived in downtown. So, you know, Uh downtown had its own, like, celebrity world, its own universe Mm -hmm. of people that were super famous downtown, what that means, like, among 200 people or so, (laughs) you know, but, like, virtually unknown above 14th Street. And today, they're the ones that everybody talks about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Now, now you don't have the time to to create this whole world of superstars uh, with audiences of each other because everything goes up, you know, Internet famous so quickly.
0: Yeah. So what did Andy talk about? Like, I mean, what did you guys if you can, because I'm always perplexed. I I would be around him here and there. You know, usually he would have that sphinx at that point, you know, you just not say anything. You just be there. He'd look at stuff. He'd take photographs. He'd carry interview magazines with him.
1: He didn't really talk that much, but what he really, what I think he was about was just was really interested in everything that other people were doing and, and wanted to know like what was how, like all about you, which is like, you know it's not, it wasn't really about him he really paid attention to us and gave us like that kind of attention so that was very supportive i'll have to say you know
0: yeah i imagine i mean that's true that's a great point to make about him that he, with all the people around him all of you know his movies and you know those photo shoots that he would do and screen tests and things like that it was really always about all these other people and he managed to bring all those people into his world. But at the same time, at around then, he was not really popular in the art world for the most part, mm-hmm. right? You guys kind of brought him back into relevance somehow.
1: Well, we didn't know he wasn't popular in the art world, and we didn't care. You know, we had the whole fantasy, I think, about the factory of the 60s. So when we arrived in in New York in the late 70s, that, that factory was long gone. It was been replaced by the... More disco, you know, Halston, Studio 54, era Factory, and we just kind of created our own version, I think, of our fantasy Factory, which was, you know, our club scene. I think.
0: But also Club 57, to be specific, is
1: yeah, Club 57
0: was kind of your sure. version of the Factory. You and and that was and what others. we emulated.
1: I mean, we we wanted more than anything for Andy to walk in and just see us. Like doing our whole thing in a way inspired by him, uh, although he never did. He never did. (laughs) No, we all met him and and befriended him, but that was after Club Fifty Seven had ended.
0: Oh, too bad. Tell us a little bit about Club Fifty Seven, to you know, from your perspective. How you know what what drew you there?
1: uh, It's easy to describe because there was a show uh, that took place last year, or was it two years ago? I don't remember, at MoMA, uh, and it was a uh, show about Club Seven. So if you want to know more, you can get their catalog, which is pretty cool, with John Sex art on the cover. Uh, but basically, it was a little club in the basement of a Polish church in St. Mark's Place with a jukebox and a bar and a little raised platform for a stage. And we would hold these Parties basically every night, different themes, and with performances, one night art shows, music. It was like that. So we had each other as an audience, and a lot of people, you know, came out of there. It was like almost like a, a fun time party romp, but it was also, in a way, a, an art movement or a school of art or something like
0: that. Right. Well, uh, you know, to, in today's terms, you're creating content. And mm-hmm. you know, each night, if you had had, you know, YouTube or something back then, imagine right. it's a little bit insane, right? Every night you would, every day you would have another show. It'd be oh yeah. And uh, and one of the things that you were famous for in that time, I don't, I don't think you actually built one of your closets in Club Fifty Seven, did you? This was something you had in your home, your cosmic cabin. Yeah, I cabin. mean,
1: I've done, I did installations in the club, but they didn't last long. They usually only lasted one night. That I had initially wasn't in, in a closet. That's why call it called the closet. And then they grew and they became called Cosmic Cavern. But these environments, made out of pretty much garbage from the street, painted fluorescent, creating kind of a, an otherworldly, crazy, place that is very chaotic. Yet it's very, in my opinion, uh, kind of retreat from the real world. So we used to hold these parties in there, and and a lot of you know crazy fun and dancing and psychedelic and everything.
0: Did you have that notion in mind when you thought of it, that created it, that this would be a haven for people, or was it just more fun to just make something, or that it turned into a haven? It was like this. I
1: discovered this space in this crazy building up near Times Square that I was living in, and I didn't know what what I could do with it. It was it was kind of a closet, but whatever. So I took it over and and it was very old. It was like it had old wallpaper in there. It was kinda creepy. And I just started finding I was into garbage and making art out of pieces from the street and I just started painting fluorescent and putting it in the room. And then all of a sudden it just became this cool little spot to hang out in that was a whole environment, and it just kept growing. And other artists would come and and add to it, and you know, then there was like video videos in there, and it just became this alternate space, I guess.
0: Nobody was really making any money at art at this point, really, right? This was just something. Oh no, no, no just money. just did for love, or but it didn't fun.
1: cost anything really to live, so. There was the trade-off,
0: right? And then this whole street art thing that uh, we talk about today—that we didn't call street art back then—it was more like graffiti. That you were one of the original people going around downtown doing was the Jetsons, right? Was that your character? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I did basically. I, as I said before, I took this iconic characters that everyone would identify. Yet I transformed them in a way, for instance, I would often put, let's say, Wilma Flintstone's head on a, a snail body or, a you know, Fred on a bug body or something like that. Like anthropomorphic insect, alien things, but with the identifying Flintstone or Jetson's character. Uh, and then I would spray paint these all around Manhattan. And, and, and Queens, because I had a studio out, PS1, and I would ride my bike at three in the morning from there to the East village in Balm.
0: And, uh, you know, today there's this like huge street art industry, right? Do you, you're like an OG. Do you feel like, you know, because sometimes people start things, but they don't necessarily get the reward later on uh, yeah. when it becomes, you know, a thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can relate to that comment.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, maybe not with the the whole graffiti street art world, because I feel like I'm they, they people understand where I you know I've been doing it for so long. Right. But I, I you know I see a lot of things going in the art world, big big time, and I'm like, wait a second, I did that 20 years before, and and no one gives a shit.
0: <laughs> right, so how does how does one deal with that and and in you know, just in conjunction with that question, over a career that spans all these years, how do you keep fresh you know what is it that inspires you to to keep going and and keep doing more?
1: Well, you know, I'm just one of those kind of artists I'm just driven, like you know kind of crazy, and I'm constantly learning new things, and that's why I never get bored. Because I'm always exploring and doing things in a different way that makes me excited. I'm never bored. I'm so grateful for that. I get to do fun stuff all the time.
0: Right. And how long a period do you ever go without making any art?
1: Uh, Since I was born.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, more recently. but
1: (laughs) There was a time in high school where I was more just a crazy party goer, but I have been doing it. Pretty much, my whole life.
0: Every day, you work every day, right? Yeah, since I was three. Yeah. Wow. Because they say that you know, creative people are really happiest when they're being creative.
1: For sure. I mean, I, I'm painting right now as we speak. I'm sitting. I'm talking on the phone, and I'm painting.
0: Doing two things at once. Well, you know, that's not supposed to be very good.
1: (laughs) Well, I've I've actually created the template of. Uh, what I'm painting. So yeah, while we're yeah. talking, I'm basically it's filling in, being crafty more than yeah. thinking and, of ideas. So I'm able to talk about ideas and be crafty while I'm, I'm basically rendering things that's already been laid out for my, that's how you do two things at
0: once. I got it. So how was, uh, when you were younger, what was besides TV, what influenced you uh, visually in that way. Did you go to museums? Did you just look at art, uh, history? And Not really. Like I mean,
1: I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and basically at my world was where I went on my bike, which was pretty far when I think about it, but there were no museums or anything. So my art back then was head shops because they had posters in there, and I learned about Dali and Magritte and okay. the Kiriko right. and, and all those, like, hippie head shops. They had, like, surrealist posters in there. So I learned about that. Um, but I didn't really have access to art. My parents took me a couple times to the, what's the museum, the um, the Huntington Library in Pasadena. And they have, you know, the the blue boy and the pinky. Um, so that was like, okay, there's a, the, the hanging art on the wall with a big gold frame. And, you know, so I got to experience that. But no, I didn't really have art.
0: And I they didn't have like, the classes or any um, in school? Well, room. I used to
1: actually ride my bike to this place uh, on Ventura Boulevard in, in North Hollywood, I guess. It was called the Flemish Art Shop. And they would have these painting classes in the in their yard of this frame shop. And we'd paint still lives. Uh, so. I was doing that, you know, like around eight.
0: I like to see what those look like. Yeah.
1: Oh, I have them, I have one seascape <laughs> hanging, right now. I love it. I have that art still hanging because it it looks pretty good actually.
0: Cool. And then what about contemporary art? Do you like to go to galleries? Do you or even you know what kind? What do you like or what do you not like?
1: I, I get to look at things more when I'm not here at home because I'm always working. So when I travel to another city or something, I seem to be able to see more art. Um, but, you know, I, I like to go to Friends openings, you know, like, so I see art of Friends or galleries that I'm connected with. So Name names, I, that's come on. Kinda like,
0: Name names. What? Name names.
1: Uh, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, curious. my old we, we were speaking about of 57. Yes. And that show at MoMA, and my friend, my old friend Kitty Brophy, when no one really even knew she was an artist, she showed some of her work from the 70s, and I've been encouraging her to keep, keep it going or redo, re, re-ignite her, her great drawing style. So she's been really full force, and she's had a show here, and she had a big review in the L.A. Times, and yeah, she's cool. in some show now, so, and she had some show in... You should go visit, when you go in Miami, to Swamp Space... Uh-huh. Down at uh, Oliver Sanchez, yes. the, one of the old D Seven kids as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So Sweet. Kitty's doing good. And what about the you know the the art world types? What inspires uh, you? Or what inspires you today in general? Given that you know the Jetsons and and all that is you know something of the past. What. There... <laughs> what? What are you saying? The
1: Jetsons are of the past. No, it's the Flintstones of the past. Uh,
0: oh, right. Uh, the Jets. The Flintstones <laughs> the are of the, the future, future, man. The Flintstones of the future are. I know you're a big you know, environmental guy.
1: For me, I've been when I when you look at the stuff that I was doing at the age of five, my all my subject matter has stayed the same. So you asked me the other thing that inspired me besides TV. Uh, it would be nature, so I've always been a big nature boy, and I like growing things, and, you know, I like looking at flowers and insects and birds, and so that, that is, keeps me pretty busy. Yeah, your flowers around. are
0: beautiful, in fact, the ones that you paint, I know. I see them.
1: Well, I study nature, you know, so I feel like nature is, is my inspiration. That's my religion, really.
0: Oh, cool! Well, so and it's killing talk, me actually. Well, it's killing the war me. against nature. Yeah, the war against nature. Well, speaking of, because part of your journey getting back home was moving south first to Miami, which mm-hmm. is a very kind of wild nature setting, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you went to Brazil. You got married or yeah. had some children. Well, that
1: was actually before Miami. Oh, Brazil, Brazil was first. That's right. Brazil
0: was first. From New York was Brazil. Yeah.
1: Yeah, New York, Brazil back in 82. Okay. I left all that hullabaloo and went somewhere where no one even knew what a New York art world was or cared. There was no electricity where I was living. There was no road. So that was interesting. And then I decided to have, you know, a child and then, and, and, you know, be <laughs> a married guy.
0: Yeah. Well, thank God. World. Now you have grandchildren and it's awesome, Yeah, right? that's
1: my favorite thing is my... In my life, actually, is my two grandkids who live near me, so I get to hang out with them pretty much every day. They live in the neighborhood.
0: But when you um, left uh, from New York, it was a, a big exodus.
1: Oh, it was the saddest place in the world. I mean, the It was if you were either dead, obviously you weren't living there when you were dead, or you moved away, and then there was no one left. And I just, I, I went down there. Um, well, dead thinking, from
0: AIDS, you mean, right?
1: Hmm? Dead
0: from AIDS. AIDS.
1: Yeah, basically everyone died of AIDS. Or, so many of our great uh, friends and drug super, overdose, either yeah. one or both. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that was a you dark were there, time. You know, it was a yeah. terrible time that we went through.
0: So were you kind of like rec- recuperating, or like I, just I getting your I, energy I, I back, like or what?
1: I remember walking through the streets, and the whole city to me seemed like a ghost town. And then I remember, I remember walking at this point, and it was one of those snowstorms. And and but everything was like melted, like flush. But it was all flush. That was black and gray mm-hmm. from you know all the melting dirt. You know how it gets, mm-hmm. really gross. And I thought I was walking through diarrhea, frozen, and it just made me so sick. And I was like, I have to get out of here. And that's when I'm hand.
0: And did your work change when you moved after that? Was it still like sort of beautiful colors and you know? Well, I've always been a
1: tropicalista, and then so from the early days of moving to Brazil, you know, I, I pretty much incorporated tropical world, uh, nature, jungle into my work. So moving mm-hmm. to Miami was a easier way because there was well schools for my kids, which they didn't have in the place with no electricity and a connection you know to new york so i felt like it was a little bit of brazil and a little bit of new york but the truth is it was neither
0: <laughs> and do you feel like because you know in terms of your career you know you had to sort of reimagine yourself right and reinvent yourself cause... oh it was
1: a career killer because if you imagine before the internet and you leave new york it's basically like you just went offline and shut off your phone and said <laughs> goodbye because that's what it was like back then
0: did, was that intentional or just a side?
1: No, I I, I I didn't realize I was killing my career by leaving New York.
0: So and then uh, you know because had you been in New York, do you think
1: uh, what probably what wouldn't happened? have been so quiet? Let's say yeah, I would have been. People would have seen my face and realized that I'm still alive. As opposed to when I moved down there, uh, I, it was almost like I just dropped off.
0: But in the, in retrospect, um, it might have been the best thing, right? Because it did get you, know, you into nature. You we can't
1: decide what would have been or could have been. It's just that's what, I, that's what right. it
0: was. the life we I, didn't I, I
1: felt like after a year down there, I realized maybe I shouldn't have moved lock, stock, and barrel, and then it took me seven more years to get
0: out. Before going to Miami? L.A., back to oh, L.A. Back to yeah. L.A. With, and, and then in Miami, which was... What year was that, like in the 90s? Or?
1: Yeah, 90s. I was there in 90, from 92 to 97. And that
0: was when sort of uh, Miami was being rediscovered and recreated by a lot of the artists yeah. from New York. It was really fun there. when
1: I first arrived. It, it, re- it reminded me of, and that's probably why I moved there, of the East Village uh, when it was fun, but it was on the beach. So you had, you know, a lot of abandoned buildings, and you had, uh, instead of Puerto Rican street culture, you had more of the Cuban culture, and then instead of Ukrainians and Polish folks, you had a lot of old Jewish people, and then you had the bunch <laughs> of bohemians. So it, it was like kind of East Village on the beach for a while, and I, I loved it. And then it seemed like after one year I was there, it turned into all the modeling agencies basically moved down there. And then for me, it wasn't as fun anymore. And then a lot of the artists that I liked left, so I, I didn't really... Like it so much. Yeah as far as the culture. And the
0: artists actually revived the city, right? They used to come like Suzanne Bartsch would come down with her parties exactly. from New York. All the so New Yorkers fun. would yeah. and and all the places like you were saying on Ocean Drive were just kind of senior citizens like sitting on yeah. Crack House next door. It
1: was it still looked like Scarface.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Which is so great.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what happened there in those years, and then when you went to LA, so did you feel like? Uh, how did you feel? Were you feel like defeated or victorious, or you know, like having to come back home? Like, you know. No,
1: I, I wanted to move back to LA. I decided I wanted to work and do animation, so I needed to be in oh, Hollywood. Okay. And back then, you kind of needed a studio to make something in an animation. So, I just decided that that's what I was going to do. And then sure enough, really soon after I arrived, I got this deal, uh, doing a a cartoon for Cartoon Network. So I thought I had just, you know, gone to heaven. and just, my dreams were coming true. Little did I know. They, after working on it for, oh, like three years and going into debt because of the hours it was in the early days of CGI. It was actually the first CGI cartoon on television. After the whole thing, they finally aired it, like, once. And then they never spoke to me again, and I don't own it.
0: Aww. And it's just
1: a typical Hollywood story, mine plus many others, but it doesn't make it any less painful.
0: Terrible. Yeah, I did see it, though, the first <laughs> one. I wanted more.
1: It was also nominated for an animation award. Do you think they would have supported it a little bit? But no, it was just buried immediately.
0: Yeah, so how... What did you do after that? How did you... Re- I went back
1: to painting, and I said, right. you know, F this. Am I allowed to say that on the radio?
0: Anything you want well, to yeah. uh
1: Yeah. And I was like, you know, fuck that. And I was just like, okay, so I'm going to... Because when I, you do an animation, especially for a Hollywood studio or something... You have to get every little step of the way like, okay, like, okay, then it's going to go like, okay, and then you have to have lunch and you have to meet about it, and then they all like put their two cents in, and it's like really like that. It's really annoying. And then I realized how great it is to be an artist where you have your paint and you, and you don't have to ask anyone's permission for anything or get any okay from anyone. And it felt amazing. So, in a way, it was really good for my art career to be kind of like Refocus. going so off the radar. And when I came back, it was I was grateful to be. It is a great thing that you don't have. You just do it. You don't have to ask anybody.
0: And today, in your work, which you know I'm a big fan of more than ever. I mean, first of all, your technique and skills are just you know unmatched and beautiful, and, and that's like incredible on its own, but also, you know, it seems like you're playing with a lot of different ideas as well. I know you're, you're as you said, you're involved with nature as a big part of your life, and you've always been picking things up off the street and recycling them and mm-hmm. putting them into your work, and that's something that you're continuing, and given the state of the world and the environment where we're in, it seems to be much more on target Resonant. than ever, Yeah.
1: You know, I showing people like some of this work that I have uh from the eighties of uh made out of plastic beach garbage from Brazil and I say like, Oh, you know, this is from the eighties and like, wow, because back when I did it in the eighties people just thought I was nuts and now they look at it and it's like, Oh, okay and now it and what I wanna say is like I wish it didn't have so much resonance. I wish that they would look at it now and still think it was meaningless. Mm. Uh, But now everybody knows what is going on, and you can't, you know, it's just getting so much worse all the time that it's not something that anyone can just pretend isn't happening.
0: And you're really working it, though. I remember I went to that show, I think, that same time uh, when I came to visit you, you had a show nearby uh, at your gallery, where a lot of it was old TVs that had been, you know, decorated, repurposed, and, and this is something you'd been doing all the years back as well, right?
1: Well, yeah, I've been making art as I talked about the Cosmic Cavern or the closet, all that stuff from the garbage. So I was—I've always been obsessed with garbage and what we throw away and what it means to us as a society. There's so many levels about garbage other than what is also apparent, which is recycling and waste and 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 landfill and all that stuff and and then even there's just so many levels of garbage because it's all been used by someone, so it it actually also has a whole story of a human alongside of it, so the whole thing i've always been obsessed with garbage and and it's I still am uh, I'm working on this ongoing project right now. In L.A., it's on the roof of Honor Fraser Gallery, and it's continually growing until the election in 2020. And basically, it's plastic garbage tied to the roof, and it's hanging in a, a colorful display uh, and will continue growing. And I'm taking, if anyone's listening in L.A., taking donations of plastic, you can drop it off in the back of the gallery and it will get added to the the display.
0: So it's all plastic only.
1: Yeah, it's all plastic, plastic, and a lot of it is like when I'm driving in L.A., I see these like kids' castles or like you know Cadillac Escalade just thrown out, those big plastic cars and so I, I you know I take them and they look great. They're all colorful and they're all tied up and it's kind of
0: yeah. Fine. It's a perfect material for you. It's lucky. Yeah, to it's have great. It art
1: plastic is great art material. It lasts forever.
0: It's colorful, it's light. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's the curse and the blessing. At and the it's same cheap. Time. It's everywhere. It's, it's rain resistant. It <laughs> Yeah. It's it's excellent. And and you know, but decorating and I don't know, because you there's so many things that you have done and uh, you know, coming from LA, the car culture. Yeah. Uh that's another whole world of yours, isn't it? Like uh,
1: Oh yeah, car bombs and car customizing is part of my you know, work, uh, it's all, it's been forever and that is definitely part of my Southern California culture growing up for so, sure.
0: So what do you do? Tell, you know, do you also put plastic on it or paint it, or everything?
1: No, there's two, two of them. One is called car bombs, K-A-R-B-O-M-B-Z exclamation point. Uh, so this is something I've done over 250 of them. They're basically people, sometimes strangers, sometimes friends, bring me their car i spray paint it it takes about 20 minutes and then they're gone and they're driving around the city most of them are in la because they come to me but also i've done many in new york uh miami portland texas They go all over and uh a little bit in europe and asia but it's something that i do it's an ongoing public art project using cars uh, and then there's another one that I do, which is customizing, which is more, you know, it takes longer and it's, there's some money put in, you know, like I'm working on something right now, something very cool that takes, you know, months and months to do.
0: But you're kind of like, there's nothing that you don't want to paint. Is that fair to say?
1: I like to have my whole aesthetic world in kind of controlled, uh, in a fun way. So when, we're given so many objects from designed uh, by people, you know, done in gray and beige and just things that, you know, I they don't find exciting. I want to transform them and, and change the, the use of them. So, like, if you're just using a telephone and you don't even think about it, well, we don't really use telephones Right. Anymore. What's so a maybe,
0: telephone? Yeah.
1: Uh, well that's I used to do a lot of TVs back in the day but oh just a car you know boring old Toyota Corolla it's gray and there's a million of them in the highway well just imagine if they were all painted the traffic would be a lot better I mean I can't get to all the cars but there are other encourage other people to paint cars I don't know why cars are so boring
0: Right, and people pay so much for it. I guess they don't. They try to keep it like without anything on it, keep it as clean as possible. And it's so boring.
1: It's like, so why is it so sacred, your surface of your car? It's when did it become so sacred you can't do anything?
0: That's a good question, man. We have to like contemplate that. So dumb. Yeah. Well, we'll give give our audience a chance to do that. And um, it was great talking with you. You
1: too. (laughs) I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much. Me too. Always a pleasure. So, and I look forward to seeing you on my next excursion. Come on back. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms.